0: Friendship and failure are two big F words that loom large in the work of podcaster and writer Elizabeth Day. In her podcast, How to Fail, she interviews successful, high-profile people about how they've overcome failure, and she talks about the complexities of friendship and modern life in her book, Friendaholic, Confessions of a Friendship Addict. Elizabeth, welcome to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for that lovely introduction. I didn't know I was so obsessed with F-words, but clearly I am.
0: (laughs) We've detected a pattern here. Also in this pattern, after 18 seasons of How to Fail, it really is clear how much this conversation resonates with people. I'm sure you've thought about this. Is it not feeling alone in your failure or a little bit of schadenfreude?
1: Oh, oh, that's such a good question. I I think it's mostly the former, but there might be a a touch of the latter. It depends if you
0: like the person in the first place. Exactly,
1: exactly. And it depends if they've done that thing of not actually engaging with the full premise of the podcast, which is really that failure can make us learn necessary things and can give our life meaning if handled appropriately and have just chosen an opportunity to humble brag. But it happens very rarely. But I, I think the thing that keeps people listening and has made the podcast, ironically, the success that it is, is that failure is deeply relatable and it is what makes us human. So we can all relate so much more when someone trips up in life or when they struggle or when a relationship ends or when they don't get the promotion at work, because we have had those experiences in our own life. And actually it's the vulnerability that provides us with an access point of connection. So I think it's mostly that. It's mostly feeling less alone. And I think people also tune in because they learn from it. And they learn that these celebrities that they might see on the red carpets who seem to have it all sorted actually also went through really tough times. And they are where they are. And so I hope that when they listen to those kind of conversations whether it be with bernie sanders or um chimamanda ngozi adiche or margaret atwood i hope they feel less alone but also like there is hope and that the podcast therefore is life affirming rather than just an excuse for schadenfreude
0: <laughs> you use the word vulnerability and that really comes across in these conversations a lot of the failures that are discussed are sort of historical and people have dealt with it, have processed it, have mm. been able to get perspective on it. I wonder if you did a season where you, you talk to people who have only just failed in that really raw uh, immediacy after a failure because that is where the vulnerability is when you're still working out, I, is, this, is this me or is this uh, mitigating factors? I just wonder what that would yeah. bring up.
1: Yes, it's an interesting idea. And there have been a few guests who have either just experienced a failure or who are still going through it. One of them was the fashion designer, Henry Holland, who I spoke to during the pandemic, and his business was going bankrupt. And he really wanted to do the interview then and there because he knew that there were lots of other people during the pandemic whose businesses were also struggling. And that was very, very interesting, but obviously that's a business failure. And of course, he felt it personally because it was his business with his name on it, but probably slightly different from what you're suggesting. And I think I would really struggle with that from a professional point of view, because I'm, I'm not sure that it would be entirely ethical to speak to someone who hasn't yet dealt with their failure, because I'm not ultimately a fully accredited therapist. So it's not the space for you to be in when you're still processing something that you're dealing with, that you're going through, that is affecting you deeply emotionally. It would be fascinating, but I think I would send those people to my best friend, Emma, who is actually a therapist (laughs) and, and who can help them. And actually, there is a great deal that I get as a podcast host from someone being able to look back on their failure because they are able to assess what, if anything, it might have taught them and how it might have changed the path of their life and what they learned from that. There's there's a sort of reassurance to that tone that I really, really like. Having said that, I have had a few people, and this has always surprised me, who um, they've experienced the death of a close family member. It's mostly parents. And they see that as their failure in some way, that they were failing to protect their parents and of course there's nothing that you can do when someone's time comes but those conversations have been some of the rawest and and most beautiful actually I think of how to fail and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie who I just mentioned she's she's one of those people who spoke about that who spoke about the fact that she was she was chest deep in grief when she spoke to me and I really had to ask myself some serious questions about whether it was okay to be talking to her to be asking her these questions to put it out there but ultimately it was because it was a conversation she really wanted to have and i'm forever grateful that she had it because i know that it helps other people going through grief
0: for people that are new to your podcasts uh, you you mean in this one you you ask guests to submit three failures before recording mm. i mean i suppose they roughly fall into uh, one of two categories personal or professional but i'm, I'm curious about if there are other themes that stand out to you in the failures that they submit. For for example, are there trends between different genders?
1: Yeah. Um, That's such a fascinating question. I sound like I'm saying all of your questions are really interesting, but they are because I haven't been asked them before. Um, In terms of the kinds of failures picked out by gender... I used to be able to say that there were trends, but that has become far less so now as the podcast has grown, where I get people of all genders who see failure in all different manners. But at the beginning, when I first started the podcast, there were two things that I could say to you. One is that when I did my first season of How to Fail way back in July 2018, I really had to rely on my friends and my journalistic contacts to agree to take a punt on me and to agree to be my first guests. And I spoke to a number of men, all of whom, apart from one, said to me, I don't think I have failed, so I'm not sure that I'm right for this podcast. Whereas women, um, again, bar one, they all said to me, gosh, I failed so many times, I can't whittle it down to just three.
0: So is that the vulnerability question again? Men don't allow themselves to be vulnerable.
1: Yes, I think that there were... Or just ego. I
0: mean, it could be be either.
1: I think it could be both. It could be both. There are a couple of things going on there. I've reflected a lot on it. I think one of the things is, if you are still lucky enough to be born into a world made in your image, if you are a white cis male born into the middle classes, by and large, the world is still going to be more friendly to you than it is to a marginalised person of any description. So if you encounter an obstacle, that's what you see it as. You see it as an obstacle you can overcome on your path to eventual success rather than seeing it as a character-defining failure that you internalise. That is less likely if you are someone who is given fewer opportunities to fail by society at large. But I also think that social conditioning has been such over so many years that a lot of people who identify as male haven't been given permission to show their vulnerability because wrongly they have, they have been taught that it is weak in some way. And so I think there was also that. There was that feeling of, oh, it feels a bit scary or wrong or shameful to admit any of this. And and we do all of all individuals a disservice when we don't allow them to speak honestly about their emotions and their feelings. That, I have to say, has massively changed and evolved as the podcast has grown. But in terms of failures, like connected failures according to gender, I think very broadly speaking, and I'm so aware that when we talk of gender, we have to be really careful to make everyone feel included with the language that we use. But broadly speaking, I would think men have been more likely in the past to choose professional failures Or things like failing a driving test, something that feels quite pragmatic, that is quite easy to assimilate and learn from. Whereas, broadly speaking, women might be more likely to choose something that feels that it is a test of their character, of their kind of personal resilience. Mm. Sort of big, untidy feelings that can't really be packaged up and you can't revise to make them better.
0: I'm fascinated with the small failures, the ones that seem to happen at the early end of some of these notable people's careers, even more than the the big ones that we all sort of know about. I'm struck particularly by your conversation with Bernie Sanders and he talked about, you know, failing to get into the basketball team at school yeah. um, <laughs> when contrasted with losing the Democratic nomination. So yes. <laughs> uh, they, they, they are more revealing in some way. Regardless of gender, to move on from that topic, yes. because I think it's those that is the ultimate invulnerability the little person who did that thing that was big to them at that time.
1: You could not be more right. I'm so glad you picked Bernie Sanders because it's one of my favorite interviews in the sense that. I knew I was going to have to bring my A-game as an interviewer because I knew that he didn't really love speaking personally because for Bernie, it's community that's the most important thing. It's the we, not the me. Um, And then he chose that failure about failing to make the basketball team. And these are the failures that stick with us. That happens again and again. I had the performance artist Marina Abramovich on recently, and she spoke about how she was taking part in a chess competition as a little girl (laughs) and she dropped the chessboard and everyone laughed at her and she found it so humiliating and so embarrassing and I was like, this is what has stuck with you and now you're this performance artist who does the most extraordinary things that are so sort of brave and courageous in front of an audience and she's like, yes, but I've never forgotten it and you're so right these are the things where we are too young to be able to have much agency over our own lives. We're too young in many ways to protect ourselves. These are the things that feel most exposing and that are most likely to stay with us. And it's why before I did How to Fail, my background in print journalism. And I used to do a lot of celebrity interviews I would always ask people about their childhoods. I find it perpetually riveting
0: on how people on that how they felt. I need yeah. to ask you about your uh, salad <laughs> days, shall we say? Yes. you were a youth columnist for the Dairy Journal at the age of yes. 12. What kinds <laughs> of things did you write about and was friendship on your mind back then as it is oh for most God. preteen girls?
1: I'm so happy you asked me this because the first thing I wrote about was Australian pop stars. Literally my first ever column for the Dairy Journal. So at 12, and I'm sure your listeners can relate to this, I used to have so many opinions like I knew what I thought about the world and I feel the older I've grown the more those opinions have just become completely fragmented and shattered and now I don't know what I think about anything like the world is so complicated but back then I was very clear about what I thought and I thought my favorite Australian soap stars Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan should stick to being (laughs) actors because I loved them in Neighbours that's what I wanted them to do I didn't want them releasing pop music. I felt that they were saturating the pop charts and it was all just a bit too much. That was my first ever <laughs> column. <laughs> um, and and in terms of, I, I basically wrote about kind of popular culture. But um, in terms of friendship, I that's very interesting. I don't think that I was as obsessed with it as a topic as I am now. But I was very taken with the idea of having a best friend or a kindred spirit because I had read Anne of Green Gables by Ellen Montgomery and Anne Shirley famously finds a kindred spirit in Diana Barry. And I really longed for this because... Aged four, I had moved from England with my family to the north of Ireland, to just outside Derry. And it was quite an isolating process. And I spoke with this funny English accent and I didn't feel that I naturally belonged. And I wanted that sense of a platonic soulmate who I could call my best friend. And I remember that being a very, very... Key thing for me, and I did have a very good friend back then called Susan Marshall. Shout out to Susan, we're still in touch. But it took me until I was nineteen and I had gone to university to find my true best friend. And and so sometimes these these things take time, and and sometimes it takes a while to find your people.
0: You sort of argue uh, in Friend uh, Friendaholic Confessions of a Friendship Addict that friendship generally, particularly in the adult setting, needs more examination. Mm. Why is it so complicated? Because my daughter will go to the park and I will watch her walk up to any child of any persuasion and say, (laughs) my name's Mackenzie, do you want to play? Why don't I do that anymore? Why don't adults do that anymore?
1: Oh, my gosh. It's such a vast question. I think, first of all, there is a gender dynamic here and and it is proven by all of the scientists in this sphere, including Professor Robin Dunbar, who's like the OG of friendship studies. He's an amazing evolutionary psychologist at Oxford University.
0: The number theory, that, yeah.
1: Yes, exactly, Dunbar's number. He's—he I met him for the first time the other day. He said he's only one of 10 scientists who has a number named after them. And nine of them have died. <laughs> so he's he's fighting the good fight with Dunbar's number. But he told me that it starts very young and that young girls generally find it so much easier to make those kinds of friendship inroads. And I think when we get older, a number of things happen. A number of us will be concentrating on our careers. We might have long-term relationships. We might have children. All of those things take time and effort and attention. And it means we have less time for friendship. It is particularly acute in men, in straight men. And that's why in Australia you have this fantastic men's shed movement that was set up by Ray Winder specifically to tackle this issue. It's amazing. And what Ray rightly identified was that for a lot of men, having a shared interest, something that they could do together, an activity that brought them together, lessened the barriers to entry to friendship. And it made it less exposing than going up someone at a playground and saying, can we play? And you're right that I think we lose that skill as adults. And it's partly because when we talk about friendship no one is really sure what we mean. I mean, I hope they'll be more sure once they've read Friendaholic, but it's a term that is so broad, it encompasses so many approaches that we can never be sure when we approach someone and say, do you want to play or whatever the adult equivalent is, we can never be sure what they're expecting from us in return or how they see friendship. And that leads to a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of guilt and a lot of weighted expectation where you f- suddenly find yourself you know, meeting someone for lunch once a week where you didn't really have time for that and you just wanted to meet someone once a month, but you'd never had that conversation because we think there's something slightly cringy or shameful about having a conversation. And yet in romantic love, we do it all the time. We go on dates, we talk about future life goals, we talk about where we might want to be in five, ten years' time. And then if we do decide to be together, there's a number of social rituals we can go through to show what our relationship is to the outside world. But we don't have that for friendship, and that's what makes it confusing and slightly scary.
0: Well, in the spirit of vulnerability, thank you for playing with me. And will you be my friend?
1: I will 100% be your friend and play with you anytime. That sounds weird, but I will definitely be your friend. (laughs) Adults, yeah,
0: somehow it just sounds different, doesn't it? Elizabeth, it's so great to have a conversation with you. Elizabeth Day has been my guest. You can find How to Fail wherever you get your podcast. Her book, Friendaholic, Confessions of a Friendship Addict, is out now and she'll be bringing her live show, in fact, to Australia if you want more of Elizabeth Day. That's uh, in February next year. Great to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much for having me
0: you've been listening to a podcast of the drawing room with me andy park for more great conversations search for the drawing room on the abc listen app or wherever you get your podcasts